Good morning. Good to see you this morning. And first of all, a thank you to those who prayed for us uh, speaking at the uh, Greater LA Pastors and Leaders Conference this past weekend. We had a great time together. Uh, blessed to always uh, meet new people that I've heard about and uh, know their names, but never had a chance to meet them face to face. It was great to spend some time with uh, Pastor Jeff Johnson from Calvary Downey. And uh, also Pastor Jack Hibbs was there, and uh, he brought, as all the messages were wonderful, but Pastor Jack brought something to light based on the fact that he was in the gallery at the State of the Union address, and he spent time with many of our uh, government officials before and afterwards. And I asked him, I said, hey, what was it like? That had to be amazing. He said, well, yeah, it was awesome, but what happened outside of that room was even better. And he talked about praying for senators and congressmen who had worn out Bibles on their desk, who were on their knees with their hands lifted to heaven as he prayed over them. And he made an observation during, yes, amen. He made an observation during his message as he was exhorting pastors and leaders to make sure we get in the game. God wants us involved in the process here in our country. We have free elections here in the United States of America and even all the way back to the very first chief justice of the very first Supreme Court, John Jay. He said that we as Christians are to prefer Christians as our rulers and leaders. And therefore, we have to get in the mix, so to speak. But all of us who study and concern ourselves with Bible prophecy know that it seems to be quite clear that there is an absence of the United States in the last day's prophetic scene. And Pastor Jack, I think, brought the home, brought the home, uh, point home very well that because there are so many born-again, on-fire believers in high places in this land that the rapture of the church is going to wipe our country out as far as leadership goes. Now, I like that option. As to the other options, we being overwhelmed or overcome, or militarily, uh, militarily defeated. I like to think that there's enough Christians in high places in this land that our government will be left to the hands of those who will turn against Israel, who will change the very heart of our Constitution. That's because the church is gone before the tribulation. Amen? Now, if you'd like to join us on Wednesday, I hope you will. We'll be back in Second Samuel. Our chapter will be that of chapter 8. So here we go. You ready this morning? Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 24. Acts 24, 1 to 13 will be our verses we'll examine this morning. Now, we're rejoining Paul in Caesarea Maritima, and we left our time last time remembering that God delivered Paul from a secret assassination plot made against him through extraordinarily ordinary means. Somehow, Paul's nephew found out about this plot, told Paul. Paul told, tell Claudius Lysias. Uh, The nephew went in. Claudius listened. He assigned a military escort that far outnumbered the 40-plus assassins who took a vow not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. And this 470-man military escort was given orders to make sure that Paul made the 60-mile journey from Jerusalem to Caesarea Maritima, and he would stand in front of the Roman procurator Felix unscathed. Nothing necessarily extraordinary beyond the fact that 
when God's children are involved, so is he. He watches over us. He is always with us. And he can move and accomplish his will through rather extraordinarily ordinary means. And he did so with Paul. Now, with the military escort was a letter explaining to Felix why Paul was going to stand before him. And we were told in 23, 34 to 35 that when the governor, Felix, had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers have also come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. In our text, the accusers are now on scene. They have arrived some five days later, and I think we could well say that they are the accusers of the brethren. And the main accuser of the brethren who accuses us day and night before God is Satan himself. And these tactics that were being employed by these men were certainly of the devil. Now, we have mentioned how Paul used his rights as a citizen to his advantage, and that we need to do the same under the laws of our great country today. Now, our topic today is going to, if you will pardon the pun, trump even that, in that we're going to move a bit further upstream, so to speak, to see what we can do before things arrive at the point where we have to exercise our rights in defending ourselves from our accusers and enemies. Now, our title is going to need a little setup for us so we can address our topic that we'll address through it more clearly. Now, in Psalm 21 to 3, the psalmist writes, he being King David, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice. Now, ultimately, the Lord is our defense. Amen. After all, we've all sung it many times. The battle belongs to the Lord. Obviously, that is true. Yet, as we see in the book of Acts, the battle doesn't exclude us in the sense of sitting us uninvolved on the sidelines where God goes out onto the battlefield without any human involvement. Think about this. God brought down the walls of Jericho, but he incorporated Joshua and company by marching around the city once a day for six days, seven times on the seventh. Then they blew the trumpets and God brought the walls down. But the people had to go in and take the city. The Lord certainly guided the stone that struck Goliath in the head. But David had to sling it and David had to get in close enough proximity for it to hit him. Now that tells us. That as the Lord fights for us, he often or even usually includes us to some degree in the battle. Now, that's why Paul would say to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 6, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not what? We do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare, (coughs) excuse me, are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down, down strongholds, casting down arguments, And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity. Remember that phrase, bringing thoughts into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Now, that last sentence might seem a bit confusing to us, but it simply means that when we have pulled the log out of our own eye, we're free to help someone pull the speck out of theirs. That's where you say 
Amen. Now, the weapons of our warfare are mighty in God. And this reminds us that we describe ourselves as Christian soldiers for a reason. And we do so and even teach our children through the song Onward Christian Soldiers that there is a warfare that we are engaged in. And at times we're going to stand before accusers as Paul has and will again. And we need to be able to defend ourselves with the weapons of our warfare that are not carnal. Now, that brings us to our title today, and as is often the case, we're going to tweak it a little bit, even though it's a familiar phrase, something we probably all said, something we definitely have all heard, and our title this morning is, The Best Defense. That's it, that's our title. The Best Defense. Now, a good offense might be the right pairing if we're talking about a game or a military warfare. But in spiritual warfare, our weapons are not carnal. But they are mighty in God to pull down strongholds and cast down arguments. And we're going to learn how to deploy these weapons this morning as we fight the good fight of faith in the face of the accusations against us today. So, would you stand and read with me please this morning, Acts 24 Verses 1 through 13. Acts 24, 1. Now, after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders, and a certain order named Tertullus, these gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because you may ascertain that it is no more than twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which... They now accuse me. And Lord, we're thankful for this text this morning. We're grateful for the time in which we now live. Thank you, Lord, that your word and our purpose here this morning is to equip us all for the work of ministry, including standing fast, having done all to stand in a world that is rapidly turning against us. Lord, we want to be able to not get into the flesh, so to speak, Lord, but rather employ the weapons of our warfare that are mighty in God. Teach us how to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now we'll find our first tactic, if you will, in verses 1 through 4, where we find Ananias and his cohorts. (coughs) 
<coughs> now five days later, have arrived with an order. Now, some would say this man was likely a Sanhedrin or a member of the Sanhedrin. Therefore, he was a lawyer. Now, that may be a bit suspect because his name is clearly Roman. And he is brought into the scene in order to address Felix in the proper manner and open the door for others to confirm the accusations presented by him. Now, the Roman name or the Latin name Tertullus means triple hardened. Now, obviously, thrice hardened is quite a formidable name for a prosecutor, especially when Paul has to act in his own defense. And it's been well said within the courtroom, uh, he who defends himself before the court has a fool for a client. And yet Paul was not standing alone. Amen. He was standing in the power of God. And Tertullus opens with the common practice of the day known as captatio benevolente. And it was the practice of trying to win the judge's favor through flattery. We might call it buttering someone out. Now, the accuracy of the statements made in the captatio benevolente were irrelevant. The point was how it made the authority view the one who was speaking or the representative before the court. Now, Tertullus says to Felix, you have brought a great peace and prosperity to this nation that we all enjoy by your foresight, and we accept it with thankfulness always and in all places. Well, that's what Tertullus says. The actual truth is, during Felix's governorship, insurrections and anarchy dramatically increased because of his brutality. And the historian Josephus tells us that Felix repeatedly crucified leaders of various uprisings, and he described Antonius Felix as an unscrupulous, uh, avaricious, brutal, scheming politician. Well, those who hired this orator actually hated Felix, and every word spoken by Tertullus was a blatant and out-and-out lie. Now, we're reminded in Psalm 5, 4-10... That you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. Somebody say amen. Amen. Nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you. I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face, for there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part of their motives is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against who? Against the Lord. Now, David well understood how wicked his enemies could be. He also well understood that the Lord hates wickedness. He hates falsehood and bloodthirstiness and deceit. And we see all of those things present in our text. There is falsehood. There are lies. There is deceit. There is the bloodthirstiness of Ananias and his cronies who wanted Paul put to death And they were willing to hire a lying flatterer to achieve their goal. Now, it's interesting that these are the religious elite of the day. These are the people, if there were such people, who should know better. 
who should know the word of God, who knows that the Lord desires integrity within his people. They were supposed to be the bastions of truth and integrity, but they were more like the man whom they stood before than the man whom they accused. They were unscrupulous liars with murder in their heart. I got a rather interesting call last week from a young man who is brand new to the ministry, been in the ministry for less than a year. And the reason for his call was that though he had heard about it, he was shocked at how some so-called Christians treat other Christians when they disagree with them. And I told him, well, you better get used to it. Because the fact is, I have never had people on the devil's team say things to me like people that are supposed to be on the same team have said. I've never had a non-believer call me Satan or call me the Antichrist, but I've had plenty of people who believe that they are believers do just that. So basically, my very warm and encouraging counsel to him was just get over it and move on. It's going to happen. Now, here's the point. Here's why I wanted to add that little segment to what David wrote and Paul experienced. Because part of the best defense is being prepared for battle. And the battle plan of the enemy is going to include lies. It's going to include deceit. It's going to include personal attacks. And it's going to include people who will flatter others to gain support for their side of the issue. So here's how... We prepare ourselves with the best defense. Here's the first of three things I want you to note and jot down this morning. Listen, the best defense begins by preparing yourself mentally and spiritually to experience injustice. The best defense begins by preparing yourself mentally and spiritually to experience injustice. Now, the great sage and wise man of baseball, Yogi Berra, said of baseball, baseball is 90% mental and 50% physical. I'll let you do the math. Now, there is a mental aspect to the war that we are engaged in, certainly a spiritual aspect to it as well. And we need to be mentally and spiritually in the game because it's going to happen to us all to some degree and for the same reason as Paul. Listen, when we take a stand for Jesus in these last days, we're going to be attacked for it. It's already happening to us corporately, and it's happening to some individually. And imagine Paul standing there listening to Tertullus Tertullus lies. The flattery of Felix, knowing full well that not one person in the room believed what Tertullus said, except for maybe Felix. Maybe you've had someone flat out lie about you or blame you to protect themselves or harm you when both of you knew what was being said wasn't true. It's not an easy thing to go through. It's hard to believe your ears and eyes sometimes, but it's nothing new. And the Lord wanted to prepare us mentally and spiritually for the experiences we're going to have in this life. He said in the opening words, following the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 11 to 12, blessed are you when they do what? Revile and persecute you. That means we're going to be reviled and we're going to be persecuted. Somebody say, you can say it quietly. You don't have to say it real loud. And say all kinds of evil against you. What's the next word? Falsely. Now, here's the important part. For my sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, people who stand for God are going to come under attack. And it's been as true as long as the prophets have been on the earth. 
and those who spoke on the Lord's behalf. In Matthew 26, 59, we're told about the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against who? Jesus. For what reason? To put him to death. Acts 6, 12 to 13, we were told, and they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribe, and they came upon scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him to the council, and they also set up what? False witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. And Stephen is the one who was in view and was a target of those accusations. Jesus talked about saying all kinds of evil against us falsely. False testimony was issued against him. False witnesses were again brought in against Stephen. The same things happened to Paul here in our text. And therefore, we need to be mentally and spiritually prepared for the season that is not only upon us, but is growing in its nature and its hatred of Christians and Christianity. Listen, the point of this is that there is a war for souls raging around us. And the devil... And his desire is to stop us from fighting because the enemy doesn't fight fair. The devil is a liar. He is a thief. He only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And listen, we are going to experience injustice in this life as Jesus did, as Stephen did, as Peter did, as James did, as Polycarp the Bishop of Smyrna did, as John Wycliffe did, as John Huffs did, as William Tyndale did, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer did, as Jim Elliot did, as 21 Christians on the sea and the shores of the Mediterranean did in recent times. This is part of the Christian experience, and yet we are told to engage in the warfare that is at hand. I love the quote of Martin Luther where he said, if we fight on any front other than the one currently under attack, we're not really in the battle. And there is a battle raging and we need to stand and do all to stand. Yeah. Amen. Philippians 4, 5 to 8 reminds us, let your, what's the next word? Gentleness. Be known to everyone you like. Be known to who? Does that include our accusers? Absolutely. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And get this, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and what? Your minds. We need our minds guarded, amen? Through Christ Jesus. And one way to guard our hearts and minds is to be prepared to experience injustice just like Jesus. Now, let's take a second read through 5 through 9. For we have found this man a plague. They're trying to win over Paul with flattery. I'm kidding, of course. A creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But... The commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Now, the lies, and to use a word that's recently been coined in our own nation's history, the misremembering of facts, 
presented to Felix continues as the accusations against Paul are now revealed. He's labeled as a plague. That word could be translated as a disease or a pestilence. In other words, he's a disease amongst the Jews. And a line is drawn from him to Jesus that runs through the world and finally lands in Nazareth, trying to make an association with the sect, they said, that are called Nazarenes. Now, the accusations against him are the same accusations that are made against us. He is accused of religious sedition. He is accused of sectarianism. And he is accused of political insurrection. And the first accusation against Paul is dissension or sedition. He was accused of causing an uprising within the believers of another religion. And so too are we being accused of such things today. We're called haters. We're called bigots. We're said to be causing an uprising against a loving and tolerant world that demands all people be affirmed in their beliefs and actions. And the exclusivity of the Christian message is a plague to the rest of the world and an affront or insult to other religions. Now, Paul is then accused of sectarianism, which is an excessive attachment to a particular sect or party. And in Paul's case, this was a group known as the Nazarenes. Now, in Matthew 2, 19 to 23, we're told when Herod was dead, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are what? Dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God... In a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, a lot of times people go searching for this in the Old Testament amongst the prophets. This is actually found in Isaiah 11, verse 1, where the Messiah is called the branch, and the word is Nazar, and it points to the city of Nazareth. And Jesus was predicted to be called a Nazar or the branch or a Nazarene. And indeed he is. It doesn't mean he took the vow of a Nazarite. That's a completely different thing. This is a city association with the Messiah. Now the accusation against Paul was that he was not just a Christian. He was not your garden variety Christian, but rather he was of a sect. And they were trying to draw a negative association with Paul's belief by calling him a ringleader of the Nazarenes, which was a common slur in the day. And we even see this recorded in Scripture from John 1, 43 to 46, where the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, as he was uh, bringing in his disciples, he said, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael, or Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of where? Nazareth. And Philip said to him, come and see. Now, Nazareth was the equivalent of what we would call a hick town today or a wide spot in the road, so to speak. Now, the word became a synonym for something backwards and it was derogatory in nature, and this was a label assigned to Christians in Paul's day, and certainly those who were, were as radical as him, and it always carried a widely known negative connotation. Now, 
Is there a sect or a segment of Christianity today that is being singled out through negative terminology? And the answer, in case you're wondering, is yes. Now, just like Paul, to be associated with Jesus of Nazareth is a wonderful thing, so too there's an association with something wonderful that is spoken of in a negative light in our world today regarding you and I. And this group that is viewed negatively by the rest of the world are called evangelical Christians. Now, evangelical Christians is a wonderful thing. <coughs> okay, I was just waiting for you. I thought I'd clear my throat while I waited. Now, being associated with Jesus of Nazareth is awesome. Being uh, someone who believes in the Great Commission and evangelism is a wonderful thing. Yet for Paul, it is used against him. And for us, we are labeled as a sect of the church. You know, there are some who call evangelical Christians trumpers. They try and create some type of association between evangelism and the president of the United States. Well, listen, I got a newsflash for them. I am not hoping in Donald Trump. I'm waiting for the last Trump that signals the dead in Christ to rise and we'll meet them in the air and forever be with the Lord. And listen, I also believe that the only way to be a part of the group that hears that Trump, that sees the dead in Christ rise, that meets the Lord with them in the air, is through the means and message of evangelism reaching the world. Listen, every Christian ought to be an evangelistic Christian. We ought to all be evangelical Christians, and it has nothing to do with politics. And the final accusation was packaged as sacrilege, in that they proclaimed that he had violated the temple or profaned the temple by bringing, chapter 21 says, a Gentile, Trophimus, beyond the court of the Gentiles and into the area restricted only to male Jews. But the accusation was framed in a political manner. The one area the Romans left under the judiciary of the Jews was things concerning the Temple Mount and violations of their law concerning that particular area. So the Jews throw Claudius Lysias under the bus and accuse both men, Paul and Lysias, of political insurrection in that the Jews claim they were robbed of their right to judge the matters because Claudius violently ripped Paul from their hands because Paul was guilty and they were therefore forfeited of their right to judge Paul and render justice. Now, are we viewed today as insurrectionists? Absolutely. We are against what some see as the greater good of globalism. There's a movement in our world today that there are just certain qualified leaders. Some would like to throw uh, the phrase or the term Illuminati at them, the enlightened ones, people that are more smarter than we am. who supposedly have this enlightenment that they can control the world. And all this is leading to is the fact that someday one man is going to be in control over the whole world. But we're not buying into it. We're against it. We're against globalism. We're against the Antichrist. Because he indeed is against Christ. That's what anti means. So what is our best defense when they revile and persecute us and say all manner of evil against us falsely because of our association with Jesus and Nazareth of Nazareth once we have prepared ourselves 
mentally and spiritually for injustice. Here's a second thing for us to take note of through what we just read. Listen, the best offense is to live in a manner that our enemies have to lie about us to accuse us. The best offense is to live in a manner that our enemies have to lie about us to accuse us. Now, thinking back to what David wrote in Psalm 5, the interesting thing about lies and being lied about is that the truth can never be exposed at a later time and bring shame to the teller of it. But lies, when they're discovered, they create the reputation for the teller of lies, and they are exposed, and that becomes their reputation from that point on. And in Titus 2, 6 through 8, Paul says to Titus, Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of what? Good works and doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say about you. This is the counsel we're receiving this morning as our best defense. Living so they will have nothing evil to say about you doesn't mean nothing evil will be said, well, or won't be said about you. It just means our adversaries are going to have to make stuff up in order to accuse us, which will eventually blow back on them and not us. Let me give you some examples. Are we bigots as evangelical Christians? Well, of course we're not. Are we haters? No, the head of our belief system, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the son of the true and living God, the king of kings and Lord of lords, says we are to love our enemies and do good to those who hate us and even pray for those who spitefully use us. Now, these things are being said about us today. We're bigots. We're haters. We're not tolerant or any of the other things that the world is demanding of us. And I can assure you, we're not going to be the ones who regret standing for truth later. They will be the ones who regret standing against the truth someday when they stand before God. Paul said, I didn't create dissension among all the Jews around the world. Never started a riot. The Jews actually started a riot, as we'll see in a moment. He was not a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He was a follower of Jesus of Nazareth, of whom Isaiah prophesied would be called a Nazarene. Claudius didn't take him by force. The Jews forced him to rescue Paul because they were trying to kill him. And neither man was a political insurrectionist. And Tertullus was having to make things up to accuse Paul of. And the best defense begins with mental and spiritual preparation to experience injustice and to live in a manner where fabrications are necessary in order to accuse us. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. Now, let's wrap it up by a second glance at 10 to 13. <coughs> Excuse me. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded him to, to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation... I do the more cheerfully answer for myself because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they what? Prove the things of which they now accuse me. Now, for the first time in the narrative or the first time in this exchange of dialogue, we find that something that is true is actually said. And Paul is given permission by Felix to speak, and he doesn't resort to the captatio benevolente. He simply says, I know you've been a judge for many years over this nation, which was true. 
then Paul says, I'll be more than happy to answer these matters for myself. Paul opens his argument or defense, if you will, by saying, listen, it's only been 12 days since I was in Jerusalem. And he gets straight to the point, implying, think about it, Felix. We're 60 miles from Jerusalem, and I was in Jerusalem just 12 days ago. And his opening statement exposes the lies of his accusers when he implies, how could I have created dissension among the Jews of the whole world by something I did just 12 days ago, and two to three days of those 12 days was spent traveling here? There's not enough time for me to do everything they accuse me of. He said, I didn't dispute with anyone in the temple. I never incited the crowds in synagogue or city. And they have no proof of anything of which they say or accuse. And everything Paul said was true. Now, we'll get into more detail of Paul's defense next week as we continue in chapter 24. But for now, we need to remember our last point in that Paul could say what he did because it was true. He lived in a manner that lies had to be fabricated about him in order to accuse him. Now in Psalm 109, we're told, Do not keep silent, O God of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the, of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are my what? Accusers. But I give myself to prayer. They have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. I think if we were going to say, Paul, you ought to pick a set of verses to be your life verses, these would be among them. Paul certainly could have laid claim to these, so to speak, because he was in this situation because he loved his countrymen. He loved his countrymen, even though he was the apostle to the Gentiles. Every city, he went first to the synagogue and he reasoned with them from the scriptures that Jesus was the Mashiach ben David, the Messiah, the one spoken of by Isaiah as the branch of the one from Nazareth. He wanted the Jews to come to know the king of kings and they were fighting against him without cause in return for his love for them. And in the time of the psalmist, he cried out, Oh Lord, speak to me. Well, today we cry out, Oh Lord, speak through me, because we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit lives in us. Amen? And we need to cry that God would speak through us to this ever-darkening world and the generation in which we now live. In Matthew 10, 19 to 20, Jesus told his disciples, When they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak. For it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Now, this is important to note because it tells us that what Paul said was under the direction of the Holy Spirit in giving the answers that he did. And the spirit obviously is the spirit of truth who was sent to us from the Father, according to the words of Jesus in John 14. And we knew that truth exposes lies and makes known error. And we also need to note that Paul was respectful, even though he wasn't flattering Felix. He simply stated the facts. Felix was not all the things Tertullus said, but he was the judge of Israel for many years, and Paul noted that. Now, 
the fact that our gentleness also is to be known to all, paired with the fact that Paul presented himself respectfully before Felix, brings us to the final component of, (coughs) excuse me, the best defense, which is this. Are you ready? The best defense is not allowing someone in the flesh to activate ours. The best defense is not allowing someone in the flesh to activate ours. Was Ananias acting in the flesh? Hello? Of course he was. God didn't want to kill Paul. He told Paul, you're going to Rome to testify of me as you did in Jerusalem. So they were in the flesh. Those who were with Ananias were in the flesh. Tertullus, he was definitely in the flesh. And Felix was all about the flesh. Now, the truth is, since we are to walk in the spirit, remembering walk is figurative for life, we need to be cautious of letting our flesh enter the fray when false accusations and injustices come our way. And Paul told the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Now, the word company is interesting. It's the word homilia in the Greek, and it's obviously the root for the word homily. Now, homily is defined as a short sermon of which I have never given. But directly translated, it means communication. And there are Bible translations that render 1 Corinthians 15.33 as evil communication corrupts good morals, which is probably closer to the meaning and intention that was originally stated. Now, I think we've all probably heard the phrase damaging your witness, right? We all know what that means, to damage your witness, to cast a shadow over the truths that you have proclaimed by uh, sinful behavior and getting in the flesh, so to speak. And this is what is in view concerning our closing point. When the tongue of the liar enlights the flesh of the believer, good morals at times fly out the window, leaving one's testimony or witness in tatters. Now, Paul said in Galatians 5, 19 to 26, Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that's obviously teaching repentance. Now, he says in contrast, but the fruit of the Spirit isn't those things, but it is these. It's love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. What's the next word? Gentleness. And finally, self-control. Against such there is no law, confirming what he also said to the church in Corinthians or in Corinth, that uh, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And then he goes on to say, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, think about these verses with our text as an overlay. Those in the flesh are clear, as many of the works of the flesh are made evident by their actions. So too is the one who is walking in the Spirit. 
And his manifested gentleness and self-control proves that he is showing the fruits of the Spirit, even in this scene, even under false accusations and attacks and lies. Now, we often mention, and for good reason, that Peter said in 1 Peter 4, verse 12 specifically, that we're not to think it's strange that we encounter fiery trials, as though some strange thing happened to you. And he goes on to say in the same chapter that we're going to be reproached for the name of Christ by blasphemers, but even though they blaspheme, we give the Lord glory, or Christ is glorified through us. But Peter opened chapter 4 with this statement. Therefore, since Christ has suffered for us us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the what? Same mind, same kind of thinking. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, Christ suffered in the flesh, so prepare mentally and spiritually to experience the same injustice. And Jesus lived in a way that they had to lie about him and hire liars at his mock trial, (coughs) excuse me, an unlawful execution. Now, if that's what his life led to, so too will ours to a degree. Now, for a while he opened not his mouth, fulfilling scripture, and then he answered his accusers, as Paul did, with the truth. In John 18, 37 to 38, Pilate said to him, Jesus, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the what? To the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Now, Jesus didn't let those in the flesh get him in the flesh, because obviously he's God in human flesh. And though he was tempted in all points as we are, he met those temptations without sin. But what about Paul? He did what Jesus did, and he did it how Jesus did it. By being in the spirit when false accusations were labeled against him by those in the flesh. And listen, this is the best offense because we commit no offense when we speak the truth in love. Just like Peter, just like Stephen, just like Paul, just like Jesus. Now, if we walk in the spirit, we're not going to fulfill the lust of our flesh to join our accusers in the realm of the flesh. Listen, we live in perilous times. And Paul pointed out in 2 Timothy 3 what is going to be going on around us in the last days that men will be lovers of self and haters of God. Is that present today? Are they bringing reviling accusations against us for Jesus' name's sake? So do we not need to be equipped for warfare and to do so in the manner that is consistent with that of Jesus and those who drew close association with him. And of course, our answer is yes. We speak the truth, but we speak the truth in love. And we take a stand having done all to stand. And when the false accusations come, we do not let them draw us into the realm of the flesh, but we continue to walk according to the spirit. And thus we have combated our flesh's desire to retaliate. And I think we've all had that experience at a time or two 
where we were, instead of what the Bible says, be slow to speak and quick to hear. I think we've all probably been quick to speak and have said things that we haven't thought of yet from time to time. There's an old Spanish proverb that says, uh, two talkers will not walk long together. And the fact is, we need to be listeners, and we need to be gracious, and we need to be gentle, and we need to understand that we're going to be accused. We need to be mentally and spiritually prepared for that, and we need to give an answer that is truthful, that is wrapped in the love of Jesus Christ. Because the fact is, I mentioned Polycarp earlier. When Polycarp was being executed, and he was the bishop of Smyrna, he was the disciple of John the Beloved, and when his accusers were putting the wood to the flame or the fire to the wood, he was begged to recant. Polycarp, recant and live. Please recant and live. And Polycarp said in response to these who wanted him to get into the flesh, he said, 86 years I have served my Lord, and he has never failed me yet. I will not deny him in the flame. And listen, he hasn't failed you either. Not once. He has never failed any of us, whether it be six days, six months, six years, 60 years or 86 years, God has been faithful to you. He has been faithful to me. And we cannot deny his greatness and that which he has done in our lives. Let's stand for him in these last days, even as the world increasingly stands against him. And let's do so with our best defense. And that's where you say, Amen. Father, we are grateful for your word this morning. Thank you for giving us these details and dedicating so much time so we can examine what it means to truly be under the fiery trial, to be facing the court of disapproval and to see things happening against one of your servants, a great man who loved you, who loved Israel, who loved the Jews, who loved the Gentiles because of that love for you and how he was received and treated by those he himself loved and gave himself for. So help us to use this in preparation for our moments, Lord, where false accusations will be leveled against us. Help us to live in a manner where they have to make stuff up about us in order to accuse us. Lord, I pray that as we encounter those who are in the flesh, that we not join them there. But we continue to walk in the spirit and thus not fulfill the lusts of our uh, wandering flesh. So we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for loving us the way you do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people agree by saying, Amen. Amen.